What is the most nerve-wracking meeting you've ever had? Anything come to mind? Deacon board meeting? <laughs> Man, those people. Where something important was on the line. Uh, was it interviewing for a job? Was it meeting prospective in-laws? Was it being called to the, the deacon's office? Was it an interview with police? Do you remember having to wait for that meeting? Do you remember tossing and turning in your sleep the night before? Today our passage deals with anxiety and dread. And if you remember your own nervous stomach, you will be in a perfect position to engage with our passage. And at the end of it, you might think, well, my nerves are really not that big in comparison. We are in a sermon series entitled Our Bible, The Question Book. We know the Bible has answers, but we are looking instead at some of the important questions that are asked in the Bible. And today we're looking at Genesis 32, an account of a man who had everything on the line, his family, his wealth, even his own life. A man who, if he was to follow God, would have to meet the thing he most dreaded. Today we're going to look at the life of Jacob. And just as a refresher, Jacob was a twin. He was second born to his older brother, his twin brother Esau. They grew up as polar opposites. And through manipulations, lies, seizing an unfair advantage, Jacob the cheater, the conniver, the trickster, took his brother's firstborn privileges, which included his inheritance, and stole his father's blessing, which was to go to the firstborn son, when his father was sick and blind on his deathbed. And his enraged brother Esau vowed to kill Jacob as soon as their father was dead, which forced Jacob to flee for his life. We're told quite a bit about Jacob when he was in exile, including the fact that he had two wives and two concubines, 11 children at the time. The 12th child would be born later, and they would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob became a very rich man while he was away, but his relationships and his new place with his father-in-law became strained, and the Lord told Jacob to leave exile immediately and return to the land of his birth which would have been fine, except that Esau was waiting for him there. And the last thing Jacob knew of his brother was that he was breathing murder against him. How had Esau's anger aged? Now that's a very pertinent question for today's time. Time does not automatically cool anger. One of the shooters last week weekend, which was referenced, was 68 years old, the man who shot up a church. Now, the 18-year-old shooter of last weekend, there's no excuse for him at all, but the 68-year-old, think of the depth and the heat of anger that drove him to murder. How long had that festered? He had plenty of time and opportunity, even on the long hundred, hundreds of miles trip to the church, to calm that anger down. 
And he must not have been a Christian because Christians are not angry people. Christians are loving people. We would never hold grudges. We would never hold on to our anger past sundown. We would never sin in our anger because we have clear commands from the part of the Bible that Esau did not have. So we have an advantage over him, right? This passage is going to beg us to deal, to look at how we deal with our anger. And I just feel like the Lord gave us so much opportunity in the past five or six years in this country. It's been a laboratory for how Christians work on their anger. How are we doing with that? Mm. But what about Esau? Let's not look at ourselves. What about Esau? Had Esau held on to his anger tight? Had he stoked it? Had he ruminated on it? Had he relived it over and over again? Was he plotting revenge? Jacob knew the kind of man Esau was when he left. He had grown up in rivalry to his brother. Was Esau the kind of man who would fan the embers of anger into hatred? Or had he learned through time to deal with his anger properly? Remember that Esau was a red-headed man, and you know what they say about redheads. Should, should Jacob follow God's direction and go back to face Esau? And how do we follow God when we know he's calling us into scary, dangerous territory? God had added one more thing when he told Jacob to go back. He said, and I will be with you. Should Jacob follow God when he knows Esau might very well kill him? So we're in Genesis chapter 32, starting on verse 1. Jacob went on his way, so he is going back in obedience to God. And the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim, which means literally two camps. So Jacob does follow God's directions, and in two short sentences, honestly, they're almost like afterthought sentences, we are told that Jacob received a reassuring sign from the Lord. The words in that, those uh, sentences refer to a military encampment of angels, and obviously they are to be the protectors of Jacob. They are there to usher him back into his birthland. Jacob's huge camp of animals and family and servants were set up side by side with a huge encampment of angels. And I personally think that would have been an awesome thing to see. So reassuring, so moving. I would have liked to have just dwell there a little bit, soak up the security. There cannot be a more obvious God is with you sign than an encampment of angels around you. So did that take care of his fear? Typical Jacob style, he had an elaborate entry plan, which he put into motion. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now, and I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now, interestingly enough, Jacob did not have to encounter Esau on the way to his birth home. 
he was headed to Bethel. Can you see Bethel? It's up north and over this way, up this way. Can you see it on that map? And Esau was settled in Edom, which I don't know if you can see that. That's down over here. You see Edom? And Jacob was coming from about where those camel, you know, the camel is. He's coming this way. He could have headed north and gone over the top way. But instead he headed straight south to Esau. Verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. 400 men. Now that cannot be good. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Remember the angels? Well, he's got 400 people coming to him. And he was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, thinking if Esau comes upon one company and destroys it, then the other company that is left will escape. So that was his plan. That half of his family, half of his animals would have time to run away while the other half was being destroyed. That's what he's planning on. Now, what do you do when you're stressed? Jacob turned to prayer. Verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred and I will do you good. Remember, I am just following your command, Lord, and remember your promise to do me good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Remember your character, God of steadfast love and faithfulness, so much more love and faithfulness than I deserve. Remember who you are. Now, this is a pretty good prayer. Somebody ought to be taking notes on this prayer for when we're in trouble. Remember who you are, God, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. He had fled his brother decades earlier with nothing, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. So this is his request for deliverance. For I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. He's naming his state of mind, his emotions. He's naming the fact that he totally forgot that the angels were encamped around him. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. And here Jacob repeats God's promise to do him good. So he brackets the whole prayer between, remember you said you were going to do me good? Yeah, remember you said you were going to do me good? And the surely in the bottom portion is emphatic. Jacob is holding God to a guarantee, backed up by God's own words, backed up by God's character, and in the meantime, Esau is still thundering toward him on horseback. Or was it on camelback? Or was it on foot? No, that's just too slow. He's thundering on horses. I'm feeling, I'm feeling the pressure. So now, after prayer, does Jacob relax and rest on the promise of God? Is his fear gone? No, Jacob goes back to planning. Planning, prayer, planning again, something he's very good at. Verse 13, so he spent that night there, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 
200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. That's 550 animals. These he delivered into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the one in the lead, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob, and they are a present to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. And he instructed the second likewise, and the third, and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself spent that night in the camp. So this part of Jacob's plan was appeasement and bribery. And it was ingenious. Instead of all the animals appearing at once, he separated the herds so that as Esau was digesting one gift, another would appear on the horizon, more impressive number would appear, and then another, and then another. It's a very well thought out plan. And notice the message that the servants are to give. Your servant Jacob is giving this present for his Lord Esau. Now, God had predicted that Jacob, he had been told that his brother Esau would be subservient to him. But he is not going to mention that little technicality in this meeting. Your servant Jacob is giving this present for his Lord Esau. Now, is Jacob ready to meet his brother? Not just yet. One more meeting before the meeting with Esau. Genesis 33, verse 22. That same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across a stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. You know how it is at night when you are troubled and your gut is upset and your anxiety is intensifying and then a man comes out of the dark to attack you? Oh reader, can you stand the tension? The pressure, it's our worst nightmare. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, this is a man speaking, for day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? Now there's our question for the day. What is your name? The question from this shadowy man to Jacob. And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for you have striven with God. Now this is a first mention of God in this wrestling match, and it starts to set off little alarm bells. Wait, wait a minute. Could the man he wrestled with be God? For you have striven with God and humans and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? It's not going to go two ways. And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, which means, this, this word means the face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. So here Jacob himself identifies the man he was wrestling with as God. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This wrestling match took place in the darkness of night. And as we read it, we are trying to peer into the murky depths of this account. We don't have night vision goggles. We're trying to see this man who is, stays in the shadows. We're trying to figure out what is really going on here. But the fuzziness is purposeful and masterfully written, and we are left to wrestle with this passage, which seems only fitting, even if it makes us uncomfortable. God is a wrestler? Think of all your images for God that you have in your mind. God is a wrestler? God, the wrestler, doesn't really fit our idea of God, not just because God's strength in this, in this human form was matched by Jacob's human strength, like how can God be so weak or how can Jacob be so strong? And by the way, look at this guy, Jacob, who was strong enough to keep God wrapped up all night. He never gave up, neither could best the other. But by daybreak, Jacob has an advantage because God wants to leave before the light comes and Jacob won't let him until he gives Jacob a blessing. Why is it imperative for God to leave? Exodus 33:20 says no one can see God and live. So it's not for God's sake that he's leaving. It's for Jacob's sake because Jacob is endangering himself by holding on. In spite of Jacob naming the place the face of God, it's really clear that Jacob did not see the face of God in the full light of day. God the wrestler. God the wrestler doesn't fit our idea of God because here God is the antagonist. He, God ran up on Jacob and jumped him when Jacob was alone in the dark. I had a college friend who came to chapel one day and his face was all caught, cut up and scratched and bruised. He'd obviously been in a fight and I said, what, what happened to you? It was the battle of the titans, he told me. He and all his roommates had an all-out wrestling match the night before because apparently that's what college men do. Lamps were broken. Bunk beds were used in strategy. No one was holding anything back. They were all the worse for wear. But Jacob's fight is not a good-natured dorm match. There's antagonism involved. It seems that God attacked Jacob rather than the other way around. And that's not really how I think of wrestling with God. I most often think of our wrestling with God being our initiative. We're just trying to understand God. We don't get him. We're trying to get answers. I don't think of wrestling as God's initiative to us, to strive with us. But God, the wrestler, brings the struggle to us. God, the wrestler, does not fit our idea of who God is. Because grace doesn't look like grace in this story. 
God struck Jacob's hit, hip out of joint. And by the way, Jacob still hung on after that. And Jacob walked away. The rest of his life he limped. And this is not the grace we imagine grace to be. We think of grace as healing us, not crippling us. That a meeting with God can lend, lead to a crippling. God answers Jacob's prayer for help in a very unexpected and unanticipated way. And yet Jacob prevails. He gets his very own personal blessing from God. He gets a new name, Israel, which means God strives. Amazingly, Jacob is this complicated, sometimes underhanded, deceptive, fishy Jacob. Amazingly, God chooses him. What's your name? God asked Jacob. And that is the first question we ask each other when we first meet. Our name is the word that defines, it identifies us. If we change our name, it says something about how we choose to be identified, a change of circumstance, a change of our identity. But if God changes our name, that speaks volumes about our relationship to him. Isaiah 43.1 says, I have called you by name, and you are mine. Hmm. The privilege, the honor of belonging to God's family. God gave the Israel the name that would come to refer to all the people of Israel. God was saying something to Jacob in this name about God's own faithfulness, that he was a God who could be trusted to keep his promises, that Jacob could follow this God into danger. God was saying something about his own long-time commitment, not just to the Israel standing before him, but to all of God's people who were to issue forth thereafter. God bound himself to Jacob when he gave Jacob a new name. The God who names us engages us. You can't struggle with someone who isn't present or refuses to engage. And God will get caught up in this relationship with Jacob. God commits to an active working presence. God binds himself to us, even when it gets ugly, even when we don't much like him in this hard patch we're in, even in this struggle. And ultimately, God who names, God who wrestles, that God will go with us into danger. Do we know what we're asking for when we ask for the presence of God? We should be very wary of thinking that we've wrapped our arms around God, that we have pinned God to the ground. We should think twice if we figure we have thought him out, that we understand him out. We should examine our unspoken assumptions that God agrees with my way of thinking and being. The wrestler God leaves room for mystery, for discomfort, for awe, for questions. The inscrutability of God. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? 
someone said, Jacob deals with the terrifying face of the deity hidden in sovereignty, not to be appeased and even found out. So what is your name? What is your identity? If you engage with God, I should really say it the other way around. If God engages with you, you will be changed down to the core of your identity. You may even be crippled. God is a God of blessing and grace, but God is also the God of struggle. So think back to all the struggles you've had with God. Anybody here not had a struggle with God? Okay, there might have been someone. I see no hands. Think of the anxiety. Think of the fear of the future that kept you up at night. Think of the ways you have not understood God's plan, how it didn't turn out the way you'd planned. Is God worth all that wrestling? Jacob certainly thought so. He planned. He prayed. He met God. He wrestled God. He planned again. And now he's ready to meet Esau. I forgot about Esau. Esau is thundering with the horses. What's going to happen? Oh, look at the time. You're going to have to read chapter 33 of Genesis yourself. Is God worth the wrestle? Read Genesis 33 for yourself. Is Esau still angry? <sighs> but for today, just know that God is worth the struggle. We see it in Jacob's life. And from my own life, I can honestly say God is worth the struggle. Can you? Let's bow our heads. God, it just has been hard living in the time and the place that we are living in. Oh, the opportunities for anger abound. It's just been hard on a societal basis, on a pandemic basis on a personal basis, Lord. You know that struggle. And most often I think of you coming into that struggle to wrestle the other people in my life, just wrestle them, wrestle the circumstances in my life. But today, today I ask that you would come into our lives and wrestle us. Because we have questions, we may have doubts, we may have thoughts, and we want to bring that to you and ask you to engage, engage with us to be active in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon. 
But if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.